The rest of you who remain, I would encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So they were astonished and marveling, saying, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the district of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in astonishment and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they are full of new wine. Today marks Pentecost Sunday. And just as we dealt with the Ascension on Ascension Sunday, so we will deal with Pentecost on Pentecost Sunday. And I know what you're thinking, but we are not that organized, I promise. We aim to please, but I just give thanks to God that this is the way it worked out. We preach verse by verse, and here we are, and I'm thankful for it, and the question before each of us perhaps this morning is what in the world is Pentecost? Most Christians understand that it has something to do with the giving of the Holy Spirit, but Pentecost existed before this giving that we see in this text. Pentecost means 50 or the 50th day. You hear the word penti in there. You know that prefix. It was the 50th day after Passover, and it was otherwise known by the Jews as the Feast of Weeks. You can find that in Exodus 34. Or it was also called the Feast of Harvest. You can find that in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23. It was the second of three solemn feasts that all Jewish males were required to travel to Jerusalem to observe. The, fir the first was the Feast of First Fruits. It was celebrated at Passover along with unleavened bread. This, the second feast, was called the Feast of Weeks. It was held 50 days later. And then third, the Feast of Tabernacles, later in the year. 
Other feasts could be observed from your hometown, but these three feasts, you had to get up and make your way to Jerusalem to observe them. Each of these feasts required a first fruits offering. That is to say that as the, the wheat was gathered or the, the grapes were gathered, the, the first ones to show up, the first heads of wheat, the first uh, clusters of grapes would be gathered and brought in as an offering to the Lord. It's celebrated really the first of harvest and a, a gratitude to God and really an anticipation of a, of a greater harvest to follow. It signified more than that, these feasts, but that at least was signified. And in the case of the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, it was when the wheat harvest was celebrated. That the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurs at Pentecost is a matter of profound significance. You, you might have figured by now that God does nothing kind of haphazardly. He is not a God who does things randomly. He didn't sit in heaven and figure, well, Pentecost is as good a day as any other, and then he, he decided to do this, which is the way you and I sort of decide to do things, particularly you men, I know, right? I don't know. See, now is as good a time as any. That is not the way God operates. This isn't one of those just because things. The roots of everything that God does in the New Testament is found in the soil of the old, which is why we need to grow in our continuing grasp of the Old Testament. All of those types and those shadows, all of those prophecies give way to greater fulfillment in the New Testament. Jesus was crucified at Passover for a reason. God had been preparing his people for generations for the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The Spirit's coming at Pentecost is for a reason. He had been preparing his people for this day as well, and the symbolism is rich. The symbol of the Spirit's coming at Pentecost, first of all, signified the first fruits of the believer's inheritance. The Holy Spirit was poured out on us as a pledge, the scriptures say, as a deposit or a down payment. In the giving of the Spirit, God gives us hope and assurance that he is going to pay the thing off in full and bring us all the way to heaven. He will finish what he has started. We have the guarantee of a final redemption, therefore we have hope. So Romans 8.23 says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Secondly, Pentecost was a great harvest feast. It anticipated a greater harvest to follow. As the Jews brought in their first fruits, of wheat at Pentecost, so the giving of the Holy Spirit will begin to reap a global harvest of souls. Jesus uses just that imagery, doesn't he, regarding 
uh, salvation. In John 4.34, you remember, he tells his disciples, you may think that the harvest is a way off, but he says, look, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Many of these Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem at the feast will return to their homes as the first fruits of God's saving work among the nations. For salvation is to the what? To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. So salvation comes on that day, or the Spirit comes on that day, and really fulfilled Pentecost, put an end to the shadow because the great harvest of souls had come. I think there might be a third reason that the Lord decided to pour out the Spirit at Pentecost. Pentecost was also a time to give thanks to God for his sustaining provision. And how the Spirit of God, brothers and sisters, sustains us and how thankful we should be for the gift of the Holy Spirit for all that he does in us and among us. I tell you, we don't understand the half of it. We don't understand the half of it. We tend to bump into each other and say, you know, I really like that guy. He's, you saw it, you heard it in the song earlier. He manifests, he's just so kind. Well, where, my friend, did that kindness come from? That person manifests so much mercy. I can't believe how gracious they are and how accepting they are of me. Even though I, I poured out I confessed my sins in front of them. They don't look down on me. Instead, they, they come alongside of me to encourage me in the gospel. Where does that kind of thing come from? Where does that, that thrust, that upswelling of music come as we sing the great truths of the Scripture? Do you think that's born of your own sort of native enthusiasm? My friends, the snapshots of the Holy Spirit's work in our midst are myriad. They happen every day and all the time, and we need to learn to be attentive and give glory where glory is due. For I know, says Paul, that, there, that no good dwells in me, that is my flesh. So where is that good coming from in your life? It is coming by the Spirit of God who indwells you, working Christ out of you. In fact, you remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, you need to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Okay, how do I do it? Paul says, well, you ought to see this when you look in the mirror. When you evaluate your life, you ought to see that Christ Jesus is in you. Well, how do I know if he's in me? Because he's coming out of you. It's a little bit like garlic, <laughs> but only a little bit. People love this passage, and you should. This is a watershed moment, to be sure, in redemption history. Daryl Bach called it a fulcrum event. I like that. Things are beginning to shift, and, and this is a very significant turning point. And as we go through this over the, past, over the next few weeks, I, I want to really approach it this way. We want to look at today what happened and why did it happen, and then we'll ask the question, but we'll leave it for a future time, is it still happening today? 
So today I endeavor to hit those first two questions. Let's do that together. What happened? Well, let's look first at the promise of the Holy Spirit fulfilled. The promise of the Holy Spirit fulfilled. Verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. Now it's reasonable to assume that that all together refers to the 120, you remember, that were spoken about in chapter 1 who were gathered in the upper room. I would also assume that that one place is the upper room, though the text is not specific about that. You'll recall that John the Baptist had prophesied back in chapter 3 of Luke that Jesus would come and what would he do? He would baptize his people in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus makes a clear reference to that in chapter 1 and verse 5 when he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You'll remember, this has been 10 days since he has ascended, and they have been waiting, and they have been praying, and they have been worshiping in the temple, and they have been eating their meals together and enjoying their salvation in Christ. Look at verse 2. And suddenly, stop. Don't leap over that. And suddenly, nobody was expecting this. This is a dramatic moment in salvation history. This is startling. This is alarming. This is unexpected. This seemingly comes out of nowhere. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Now, it was not a violent rushing wind. It was a noise like a violent rushing wind. It sounded like a violent rushing wind. They couldn't feel it, but man, could they hear it. And can you imagine the decibel level of this heavenly hurricane? Can you imagine how loud this must have been? This was not subtle in the least. It was loud, it was violent, it conveyed urgency. This is a tornado coming out of heaven and touching down in this house. And again, they feel nothing. They just know the deafening sound of a supernatural cyclone. And the text tells us that it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And I'll tell you what, it filled a whole lot more than that house. This reverberated out beyond the whole house, even to arrest the attention of a great number of people, not just 120. It was loud enough to bring the surrounding geographical area in Jerusalem to an absolute standstill. There is a multitude of Jews who were outside of this place who heard that sound and they began to gather together. Look at verse 6. You'll note it begins, and when this sound occurred, I believe that is the sound of the wind, they mul the multitude, what, came together. This was one of those, what was that, moments. I'll tell you what it was. It was audible evidence that the Holy Spirit was being poured out upon new covenant believers. This is like no wind you have ever heard. You know if you spend any time in the wind how it feels when you finally get out of the 
and behind closed doors, there's just a sense of calm and peace. This had them shaken. Now, why the sound of the wind? Well, in both Hebrew and Greek, the words for wind and breath and spirit are the same. It's context that helps us know the difference. And oftentimes the wind is used metaphorically as an illustration of the Holy Spirit. If you remember back to Ezekiel chapter 37, there were a bunch of dead bones out in a valley, very, very dry, dead bones. And the Lord there says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. And that breath breathes life into those bones and they rise up and sinews are put on them, this very great army. That ranks in one of those top 10 moments that I would have liked to have been at. You'll recall that Jesus in his interaction with Nicodemus likened the Holy Spirit to wind. John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like wind in that he moves and he moves powerfully and you can't feel him, you can't see him, but you can see his effects. You can see his presence, you can see his ministry in the life of God's people. Peter also used this illustration, though the word wind is not there, but he speaks of of in, in, in the process of authoring Scripture, he says that, that the men who wrote Scripture, the prophets who wrote the Scripture, were men who were being moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. The picture really is that the Spirit, like wind, was filling the sails of these men as they wrote down Scripture. Now, Before we leave this verse, I want you to note the posture of these believers when the Spirit of God is given. You'll note, look again, look again at the end of verse 2, that the Spirit, this, this wind filled the whole house where they were what? Sitting. It's kind of underwhelming, isn't it? It's kind of anticlimactic. We would have expected something more. I mean, if you're going to get this kind of thing coming out of heaven, they had to be going through some kind of gyration to make this deal happen. And yet all we're told is that they were sitting. There's no evidence anywhere in the text that they were seeking the Spirit or that they were trying to conjure up enough faith that God would finally, albeit reluctantly, but finally pour out his Spirit upon them. There's no mention of fasting. There's no mention of yielding to the Spirit or, or anything like that. We don't even know whether they were praying at this moment or not. All we know is that it is the day of Pentecost. We know that they're gathered together. We know that they are sitting. And we know that suddenly this sound came whooshing in to this building and out into the courtyards around. Christ pours out his Holy Spirit upon his people with the sound 
of a violent rushing wind. But then note that they saw something as well. Verse 3, and there appeared, that's a visual word, there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves. Again, these tongues were not fire, they were like fire. The text really talks about a divided tongue, and you, you know what that looks like. If you've ever sat by a campfire, you know what it is to see those tongues coming up off, those tongues, those flames coming up. We talk about a fire what? Licking the sky or licking the the roof. We use the word that way. Just like wind, fire is often used in conjunction with God's presence, and here it is as a visible portrayal of the very presence of the Holy Spirit. And what is unique is that that Holy Spirit and these tongues are resting on what? Each and every one of them. Look at it, it says it in the text. They rested on each one of them. That word rested is the word sitting. It was sitting on each one of them. Each one of them had this this thing that you could see visually, this flame, this divided flame, and it was a visible demonstration that the Holy Spirit was not just there in a general sense. A Holy Spirit was there on an individual personal level, wasn't he? What, what Peter had, John had, and what John had, Matthew had, and what Matthew had, Simon the Zealot had, and so did Mary Magdalene, and so did Jesus' mother, and so did Jesus' brothers, each and every one of them, even those of the 120 who are not named. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 17. Peter's going to make much of this, quoting from Joel chapter 2. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit, look at it, on all mankind. And then he gets specific. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see vision. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male slaves and female slaves, not just the significant, not just the powerful, not just the mighty, but even the slaves, male and female, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. You can see there's a lot of emphasis being placed on the individuality of this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if we're not clear about it and convinced, look at the start of verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, all of them. Now, why, why make such a, such a fuss? Well, you make such a fuss because this is not the way it's been. This is not the way it has been for millennia. This is a new thing in the eyes of those watching. The Spirit of God, listen, was, has been very active. You know this. That showed up in the song we just sang too. Very active from the very first verses of Scripture, right? We know that the Spirit of God was hovering and he was involved very actively in the act of creation. We see the same aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that we see in the New. The Holy Spirit regenerates in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit leads in the Old Testament, convicts, protects, empowers God's people. But he was given in particular to a greater measure to certain people to empower them for special service. The Holy Spirit was given to prophets and to priests and to kings. He came upon them in a 
greater way because they had a greater responsibility and a greater role to play as the leaders of God's people. Men like Moses and Ezekiel and David. The scriptures say that Joshua was full of the Holy Spirit. We see that even people that are maybe less familiar, the Spirit was empowering men like Bezalel with artistic skill to to craft and construct the tabernacle. John the Baptist, the scriptures tell us, were, was full of the Holy Spirit, what? From, from in, his, in, in his mother's womb. Zechariah was full of the Spirit. John's mother, Elizabeth, was full of the Spirit, according to the scriptures. Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. Certainly, there's no higher demonstration of what it means to be filled with the Spirit than the very life and ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the supreme example of what it is to live the Spirit-filled life. If you want to look at what a Spirit-filled life is like, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would note that all of this is pre-Pentecost. The Spirit didn't just suddenly go to work. He hasn't come in, you know, following halftime and just going to play in the second half. He's been here all the way along But his ministry is going to be more pronounced in the new. You see, in the Old Testament economy, the Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry was much more limited in scope. It was less frequent. It was more temporary. It was more selective. And I really think this is the thrust of it. The fullness of the Spirit came upon men extraordinarily for extraordinary service and leadership, a particular task or office. And without drawing really hard lines, you can talk about the Old Testament of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as being among men or upon men or with men. That kind of language is far more common in the Old Testament than the kind of language we find in the new, which is what? That the Holy Spirit will be where? In us. 2 Corinthians 6.16, which quotes Exodus 31.3 and Leviticus 26.12, Paul's quoting it and he says, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them. That's a reference to kind of God's approach in the Old Testament. Whereas in John 14, 17, our Lord speaks these words referring to the Holy Spirit. He dwells with you and will be in you. And I think this is the point. There is a much more powerful, fuller, greater work of the Spirit in the lives of of believers, and by that I mean average every day. There is no average believer, if you want to look at it that way. All of God's people in Christ have the Spirit in full measure. So instead of the Spirit anointing certain people at certain times for certain service, now we have each and every believer who will have the fullness of the Spirit personally and powerfully to accomplish everything that God has called us to do. Jesus multiplied his ministry myriads by ascending to heaven. Because he sends his spirit into his body 
both corporately and individually, and now that ministry of Christ is spread over the globe. God's smart, isn't he? You know, really, I mean, you wouldn't have done it that way. Most of us don't love to delegate. We'd rather take care of it, because as we take care of it, well, the glory is mine. Jesus Christ is working himself in and through his people by his spirit that we might put him on display all over this planet and that the Father might receive glory from the Son and the Son from the Father. This is good news. This is a new age, beloved, and we are under a new covenant, and God is doing mighty things, and he is here at Pentecost fulfilling his promise, which he spoke throughout the Old Testament, to pour out his spirit upon his people. 120 are all baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, just as John the Baptist had prophesied and just as Jesus had told them 10 days earlier. Now, I want you to work with me here because this is really important, both for today and going forward, not only in your life, but as, as, as we want to continue to ask the following questions about why this happened and is it still happening. We've got to understand what it means to be baptized with the Spirit. The word baptized means immersed. When we hear the word baptized, we tend to think water. What we want to learn is when you hear the word baptized, you want to think immersed. You want to think union with. That is by far the greater usage of the word in Scripture. So that when you trusted in Christ for salvation, you were baptized, you were immersed, you were unified with Christ and you were unified with his church, with his body. You were placed into Christ, and you were placed into the body. You say, wait a minute, when did that happen? I remember choosing to attend this church. I remember going to the membership classes. I remember the day I stood up here and recited our church covenant. Prior to any of that going on, for all of you who are in Christ, you must understand that God did something to you. And he did it through his spirit. He saved you, the spirit regenerates you, and now you have been placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit, and you have been baptized into his body, the church. That happened before you ever had a local church affiliation. The worldwide, invisible Church of Christ is made manifest in local assemblies. That you chose to join. And even that, I believe, was by the sovereign and good providence of God. I'm thankful you're here. We're thankful you're here. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For also by one spirit we were all baptized, unified, gathered, joined, immersed 
into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Listen, if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. And without this baptism, you do not belong to Jesus, nor do you belong to the church. And so even if you have a formal membership in a, in a local assembly, that doesn't say anything. What really matters is are you in Christ and have you been added to the church? Every true believer has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing. When you're baptized with the Spirit, listen, it happens at regeneration. The Spirit of God is given to you and it is a spiritual reality. Now what do I mean by that? I mean that this is not something that you can see. It is not something that you feel. It is not experiential in any way, shape, or form. It is positional. You are being placed into a person and you are being placed into the church. Those are positional statements. They're facts, not feelings. In fact, did you know there is not even a command to be baptized in the Spirit in Scripture? It's nowhere to be found. This is a one-time deal when you are regenerated and there is no subsequent baptism in the Holy Spirit as is taught in some circles. And you also should know, as has been mentioned by Daryl earlier, you don't get the Spirit piecemeal. This is not something where you, know, you, you, get a, you get a third of it in the front part of your Christian life and then if you're faithful you'll get a little bit more. That's not the way it works. You get the whole thing now. You say, wait a minute. These people, though, weren't the disciples already Christians? I mean, isn't this a subsequent deal for them? And the answer to that question is yes. It was subsequent for them. And we're going to see that played out through the book of Acts for a very express purpose Namely, the apostles in the early church are going to have to know that God is in fact doing something. And the way that they begin to see and to understand that God is doing something, well, in this case, they're sitting in a house and there's a sound of wind and there are flames of fire and all of a sudden they're speaking languages they did not know. And they say, this is different, right? That's one thing they do. But they're going to see that happen again and again and again in the book of Acts. Remember I told you, the gospel's going to be preached where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way out to the other ends of the earth. And what you're going to see is that each time that gospel circle spreads, you're going to see somebody else speak with these languages, and the apostles are going to go, Hark! The same thing that happened to us happened to them. You've got to remember that this is a very transitional stage in redemption history. So at Pentecost, these believers are baptized into the Holy Spirit. But now I want you to look back at verse 4. Notice that it says, and they were all what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a related thing 
but it is a different thing. And it is prominent in the book of Acts. And next time we get together, we're going to trace that theme out so that you can see the filling of the Holy Spirit and what it produces. But we do need to make a distinction even now. And I want you to just hang with me here. Don't glaze over. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. Hang in there. It's Pentecost Sunday. Hang in there. All right. We need to make a distinction between being baptized with the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, it's different because this is a commandment. Ephesians 5.18, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? I preached a four-part series on just that phrase in the book of Ephesians, and you can find that online if you want to, 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 to get a fuller picture in preparation for next time. But anyway, something here in the filling of the Spirit, we need to understand that this is something that is a continual pursuit on the part of a Christian. What happened to you in being baptized in the Spirit happened to you, again, imperceptibly. But this, instead, is in fact something that the Christian pursues. It's practical. It's experiential. And the fruit of it, the results of it, are visible. You can see it. It's repeatable. Let me just give you a brief definition without really working it out too much, okay? The idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit or full of the Holy Spirit, is to be under the control of the Spirit. That's really what this talks about. It is to be animated by the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Now that is not what you or I have come to expect when we hear the words Spirit-filled. I still have people asking from time to time, is yours a Spirit-filled church? And I say, amen, you know it is. And some of those folks have been sorely disappointed when they got here because what they're looking for in a spirit-filled church is not what the Bible teaches the spirit-filled life is. The spirit-filled life is much more miraculous than any of that, and it's much more mundane. And we need to understand this. We've come to expect something dramatic and exotic and strange and otherworldly. Listen, think about it this way. If you were to describe somebody as full of life, what would you mean? You would mean that they're spunky. You would mean that that they're lively and they're animated and they're enthusiastic and they're full of enthusiasm you can see by what's coming out of them what they're like on the inside, can't you? Or if, and, and so it is with the Spirit of God. If somebody is full of the Spirit, what you'll see is the fruit of that Spirit coming out of them. Or you could think about it this way. Most of you have had children or been a child yourself, and you're aware of, of what that was like that one Christmas when your dad told you, I'm going to get you that bike you've been wanting. What happened to you? School meant nothing. You started making your bed and being good to your mom just so you were sure your dad would follow through with a promise, right? You became consumed with this thing. You were absorbed in it. The thought of the bike 
had taken control of you. And so it is, again, when you are full of the Holy Spirit, that's what it means. It's to be dominated by him, under his control. Our thoughts, our actions, our words, our desires, everything lived out of the Holy Spirit. It's helpful, I think, to think about what what being full of the Spirit is not. Think about all those sins we can commit against the Spirit. It's the opposite of grieving the Spirit. It's the opposite of resisting the Spirit. It's the opposite of testing him or neglecting him. Instead, we're yielding to him and to his power in our lives. And that power, beloved, is within you. The resurrection power of the Holy Spirit indwells every believer on this planet. And man, do we want to see that power manifest. I know I do in my life. I trust you do in yours. You see, we seek, don't we, to cultivate our lives, to cultivate, if you will, the soil of our lives by time in the word, by time in prayer, by meditation, by obedience, by memorizing the truth, by fellowshipping with one another. Why do we do all those things? So that we might not be full of the world, but instead would be full of the Spirit. That's why. Well, let's get back to our text. So what do we see? We see that these disciples are invisibly, imperceptibly, positionally baptized with the Holy Spirit. We know that because John and Jesus both prophesied that this would happen. And simultaneously, we see each of them filled with the Spirit, and that's very visible. Notice what they begin to do. They begin to speak. And this is commonly what you see when the Spirit is full in someone. They speak about the things of the Lord. And so it is here. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. I love this. The filling of the Holy Spirit came with the sound of a violent rushing wind, and it came with these flickering divided tongues. And then there is this third indication that God was doing something mighty strange in these days, and that is that he gave them the ability to speak with other tongues. And what Luke means by that, beyond the shadow of a doubt, it is indisputable that what God gave them was the ability to speak foreign languages that they had never studied. I prayed for this gift when I was taking high school Spanish, but I never got it. The Greek term glossa is the word for tongue, and it's also the word for language. And really, it's unfortunate that it was ever translated the gift of tongues, because what it is is it's the gift of languages. In verse 6, Luke uses a different term. He uses the word dialectos, from which we get dialect. They began to speak in languages that they never studied, they never learned, and in all probability, they had never heard. And they were doing this because the Holy Spirit was giving them utterance. You see, the Spirit of God understands every language, and that's a cool thought, isn't it? That when you pray in English or you pray in Swahili, uh, God knows. God understands. He is multilingual. If anybody was ever multilingual, 
Well, we took a long time moving through our first point, and I, I promise you the next two will go faster, okay? Here we go. I want you to see next the demonstration. This is number two of the Holy Spirit encountered. And we're really going to read this without much commentary. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, that's Luke's way of telling us that at this time there were faithful Jews who had been dispersed either during the Babylonian captivity or the Assyrian captivity or for some other reason they had left Israel, they had been taken or they had moved on their own accord out to various regions and they are known as the Jews of the diaspora. They're dispersed. These men are faithful men, they're devout men, and they had made a pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem here for the Feast of Pentecost. Verse 6, and when this sound, and again, I believe that to be the wind, occurred, the multitude came together, and they were what? Bewildered, because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So they were astounded, and they marveled. Don't miss those words. They were bewildered. They were astounded. They marveled. You see, that's the exact same thing that happened when the Lord Jesus Christ was on this earth doing the signs that he did to demonstrate that he was, in fact, from God, that God was moving mightily through him. And what? People looked at all that Jesus did, and they went, wow, do that again. These people are blown away by what's going on. And then they look at each other and they begin to say this, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now that is not a very nice thing to say. You see, Galileans would be like Southerners perhaps in this country. They were known for their dialect and you can see that in various places in Scripture. You remember when Peter is there and the servant girl says, uh, you're one of them too, aren't you? I can tell by the way you talk. Right. And the Galileans also were, were people who were viewed by the, the higher-up classes, the, the nobility as, as ignorant and uneducated, and they were simpletons. You remember the slight on Jesus. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right? These were country bumpkins. Certainly not the type of people who would have studied and, and known languages and been able to speak them fluently. And yet, here by the Spirit of God, they're speaking these languages so clearly that people are just out of their mind. Verse 8. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia. And he, he goes through this list and he says that we hear them all in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. Take a look at this slide. I, I don't do this often, but you're going to get it today. A little digital Dave. Take a look. Take a look at all these places, and it becomes readily apparent what Luke is saying in this. What's he saying? People were coming from everywhere. There is something new. 
something different. All of these people now gathered to hear the declaration of the glory of God spoken in their own languages. They had come, as Luke put it, thank you, they had come, as Luke put it, from from every nation under heaven. Obviously, that's not every nation under heaven, but you get the point. They had come from everywhere. Thanks, Maddie. Let's look third at their response where the evidence of the Holy Spirit is questioned. Verses 12 and 13. Like everywhere else where the glory of God is put on display, you have a group of people who heed, who hear, who are soft and supple and teachable, and inevitably you're going to have another group of people who are hard and stiff-necked and stony, who won't believe. They're going to push it away. Verse 12, we see some people receive with astonishment and wonder. And they all continued in astonishment and great perplexity, saying to one another, what do these things mean? And I think that there is a sense of sincerity and inquiry into this. I think these people are earnest and desiring to know. And you say, well, why do you say that? And I say, well, the, the first word of verse 13 is, but others. And those others were clearly mocking I don't think this first group is mocking. And Peter is going to give them an explanation in verse 14. And what we will see is that God, by his Spirit, will redeem these people right before our very eyes. But the response of others was mockery and rejection. Verse 13, but others, mocking, ridiculing, with scorn, were saying they're full of new wine. In other words, they're just drunk. This, again, was just the way it was for Christ throughout his ministry. And so we, as his body, suffer the same kinds of reactions to the work of God in our midst. You remember the Pharisees. They they forever misread the clear signs that were being given to them from Jesus. They would attribute Christ's divine miracles to anyone and everyone, even if it meant saying you're doing what you're doing by the power of Beelzebul. It's the devil who's behind all of this, Jesus. You're working demonically. That's how committed they were to denying the works of God. These are hard-hearted mockers. And ironically, as we'll see in a moment, they accuse them of being drunk at nine in the morning. You see, some people, beloved, just won't have it. Some people will not have it. Maybe some of you sitting here this morning are saying, I will not have it. Well, then Christ will not have you. God will not have you. God has sent his son. And God has crucified his own son. God has crushed his son and was pleased to do it to save all who would hope in him. And God not only did that, but he, he testified of the deity of his son 
the sufficiency of his son, the power of his son, the infinite wealth and worth of his son by all that he did, and miracle after miracle, walking on water, feeding 5,000, raising the dead. Some won't hear it. Beloved, if you won't hear it today, soften your heart. Why will you perish? Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. You don't have when you're 80. You have no idea when your number will be called. Do you see the grace of God? He is not a God to be believed in blindly. He is a God who has given us evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence. And it is the... It is the it is the lenses over your heart that look at all of that evidence and they do some crazy mirror thing like at the, at, the, at, the, at the circus where it all gets distorted and it's because of your pride. Humble yourself. Those terrifying words in John 12 when Jesus says to the masses, you better come to the light while you have the light. Do you know what the next verse says? And he went out and hid himself from them. That's called judicial hardening. And my friend, you do not know when God will harden your heart and the deal will be over for you. I tell you today, if you are inclined to repent of your sins and come to Christ, he will receive you and make you his son. The good news of the gospel. Well, we've got a few minutes. We've seen what happened. I want to take a look now at briefly why did it happen? Why this sign? I'm just going to give you four of them. Why this sign? Why the sign of the spiritual gift of languages? You know what a sign is. A sign was given to point to something else. So it is in our day. You drive up the highway, you see a sign that says Lake Tahoe. You know if you get off on that road, you're likely to get there, right? All right. God gives signs, and this was a sign. There was a purpose behind it. Number one, it was a sign of transition from the old covenant to the new. You're living in this day, you've been doing things as your forefathers have done them forever, and how are you to know that there has been a shift in God's economy? That this thing is moving forward, that the fulcrum has, has, has tilted. How are you to know that the gospel was the true message? Why should you believe Peter? Why should you believe Paul? Why should you trust in this guy named Jesus? Why should you not put confidence in that sign that God had given to Abraham that if you trimmed a piece of skin from a particular piece of the body that you were in the covenant and you were a covenant son? This is a radical shift. We've, we've got to feel the, the challenge that this must have been. This was a profound turning point in God's redemptive plan. It was not a different plan. It was just a turning point. It was a radical shift. 
And so you're going from Moses to Jesus. You're going from the Mosaic law to, as John puts it, grace and truth, which are found in Christ. Paul puts it in in, in Corinthians, you're going from a ministry of condemnation to a ministry of righteousness. The law could only condemn you. But the gospel of Christ can save you. You're going from Judaism to Christianity. You're going from Saturday to Sunday. You're going from Passover to the Lord's Supper. And on and on and on I could go. The Pentecost was the birth of the church, this new age between the two comings of the Messiah. It was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So there's continuity with all that had gone on before. But at the same time, in some ways, this was a seismic shift that had to be accompanied by miraculous signs. In fact, every time you see a seismic shift and you see a new thing being done by the Lord, there are signs. When Jesus came, was that a seismic shift? Was there some reason to alert Israel that their Messiah had come? Yes. He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He, and I could just keep going on, right? Those were all signs because you've got to face the question, why believe in the guy from Galilee. <laughs> well, here's why. Number two, it was a sign of judgment upon unbelieving Israel for rejecting Christ and repudiating the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28. Follow this. This is just so cool. Paul is dealing in the context there in 1 Corinthians 14 of spiritual gifts and the gift of tongues or languages in particular. And Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. And here's what he writes. In the law it is written, quote, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, Paul writes, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, the context of Isaiah 28 is very intriguing. God is bringing judgment on a drunken Israel. There's drunkenness through the whole first part of this. They are stammering. They're even vomiting. They're so drunk. God is bringing judgment on a drunken Israel by bringing in Assyria, who is going to speak to them in a foreign tongue, and it will be an act of judgment, and they will take them captive and take them to a foreign land. Paul uses this text in 1 Corinthians 14 to explain the miracle at Pentecost when God uses foreign languages to speak to Israel. And ironically, what do they blame these languages on? They say they're drunk. No, they're not drunk. You see, Israel had refused the kingdom. They rejected the king. And the gift of tongues is part of God's judicial act in telling Israel that he was turning aside, he was turning to the Gentiles, he was turning to the church. And salvation is going to go to a foreign people who speak a foreign tongue. Number three, 
It was a sign of transition. It was a sign of judgment. It was a sign of progress. It was a sign of progress in God's plan of redemption. You remember the promise to Abraham was that he would have seed and he would have land and he would have a blessing. And the fact is that it was going to go out beyond Abraham to all the nations. They too would be blessed. All the peoples of the earth, all the families. The gospel is going out to all the nations. And so one evidence of that is that as the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, as I told you earlier, we're going to see this sign of tongues just dog them all the way out. You're going to see it move out. In other words, this gift, this sign gift, will mark the progress of the gospel. And this is precisely how the apostles in the early church knew that God was now extending salvation to the Gentile as well as the Jew. There's an illusion that many make, and I think it may be fair to make, that, that this really was, it signified a, a reversal of the curse of Babel. You remember at Babel, all the languages were confused to send people out. Well, now what we see is language being used, one gospel, one Christ, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, all being preached in foreign tongues, what? To draw people back so that people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be in the kingdom of heaven joined to Christ and to one another. So tongues were a demonstration that God was working, in fact, through the newly established church. Number four, finally, it's a sign of authentication, a sign of authentication for the apostles and for the gospel. Again, how were these people to know that the apostles were sent from God, that they should be believed, that this message was true? Well, there were signs that attended the apostolic ministry and the church's early ministry to show that these were chosen instruments to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Paul speaks of himself as possessing the signs of the apostles. You remember that back here, we just saw Matthias added to take Judas's place. You had the 12. Down here, Acts 9, we're going to see Paul also added as an apostle. And he speaks about performing the signs of the apostle. Tongues was one of the signs of an apostle. Think of it. They were all gathered, what? In that room. The only apostle who wasn't gathered was Saul, soon to become Paul. But we know from 1 Corinthians that Paul possessed this gift. Paul had the gift of languages. The greatest missionary the world has ever known never had to go to mission school to learn languages. This is why we have mission schools to teach language, by the way, because this gift has passed off the scene, and we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were worked out among you, Corinthians, with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul had all of that. So did all the apostles. They were authenticating, validating, confirming. In fact, Hebrews speaks of it, and we'll close here. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, that salvation first spoken of by the Lord Jesus 
was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So these were given for authentication or for validation of the apostles. What happened? The Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, and that outpouring was evidenced by divinely orchestrated signs. The sound of a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire, and people speaking languages they had never learned. Why did it happen? To fulfill the Old Testament promise of the of the pouring out of the Spirit of God after the Messiah was glorified. They were a sign of transition from the Old Covenant to the New, a judgment on unbelieving Israel who rejected their king and their kingdom. They signified progress of God's redemptive plan as the gospel begins to go out to the nations. And finally, they authenticated the apostles and the message that they preached. And now we're ready to ask the question, does this kind of thing still happen? And a number of you have expressed interest in that question, and so we're going to spend a couple of weeks on it for your edification. But we'll do that next time we gather. Let's stand again as we sing this beautiful prayer to the Holy Spirit, asking for his fullness to be evidenced in us. Our Lord, what thanks can we give for the pouring out of your spirit within us? Nothing thrills us more to see you in our lives, to know the miraculous work that converts a rebel into a saint. That converts a sinner filled with anxiety, filled with trouble, filled with an unsettled anxiousness. Lord, you, you have settled all of that. You have given us by your Holy Spirit peace. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for abiding with us, for abiding in us. You have made us the children of God. You have sealed for the day of redemption, you have convicted us of sin and you have comforted us with the gospel. You have regenerated us, giving us new life. Lord, you've empowered us to walk in light and you have restrained us from sin and you have corrected us gently and you've directed us. We pray that you would continue, Spirit, to, to reveal to us the face of Christ in Scripture. We pray would be illumined in the truth and that it might be seen in us, that you might be seen in us, that you would bear out your fruit abundantly to the glory and pleasure of the Father. We ask that you would continue in your work of sanctification, that we might more closely resemble our Savior whom we love. Lord, we pray that more of the Spirit would be evidenced in our life. We pray that we might honor you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and bring glory to your name. Thank you for your great work. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for your presence both with us and in us. And now as we leave, you leave with us, for you are with us always. 
Make your people's joy full by your spirit, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.